This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. When it comes to the holidays in Philadelphia, what foods come to mind? And you better not say cheesesteaks because Philadelphia is much more than that. In fact, we sit down with two Philadelphia chefs to find out what people are eating during the holiday season. Well, pork and sauerkraut. Is that for good luck? I mean, that's the superstition. Right. It gives you luck, you know, <laughs> pigs root forward, they say. That's where it comes from. And Charity Howard brings us Shara in the City. So I had West Philly High. I have some of the middle schools and stuff walking past. And for them to see a black woman succeeding, that's like major. It's like, we can do anything. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Philly loves to eat, and when you think Philly food, especially if you're a tourist, cheesesteaks probably come to mind. But Philadelphia is so much more than cheesesteaks, although they are pretty important. During this time of year, family and friends gather at home for feasts or they dine out, and there are certainly plenty of worthy establishments to choose from. Everyone has their faves, and with us today are two fabulous Philly chefs to talk about popular food traditions in the city and perhaps we get even some advice on what we should be serving around this time of year. Joining us is Chef Joy Parham. She's a public speaker, culinary educator at Community College of Philadelphia, and she's also a food justice advocate. Joy was also a contestant on Hell's Kitchen season 12, and she just also said that she was on Chopped. Also joining us, of course, is Chef Adam Diltz. He is the owner and executive chef of Elwood Restaurant in Fishtown. Welcome, Joy and Adam. Thanks for having us. All right, so I don't want to put you both in a bubble, as you both have probably whipped up dishes all over town. But I want to know where your love of food, for the both of you, where did it all begin? And Joy, I'll just start with you. For me, it began out of necessity, I guess you would say. Okay. I've always had a love for cooking and food. And when I was younger, I spent a lot of time alone because I am an only child. And I didn't know how to entertain myself. And on uh, PBS or HYY, actually, WHYY, they had all the cooking shows on the mm -hmm. weekends. So mm -hmm. Julia Childs and yeah. uh, Jacques Pepin, and it was uh, quite a few people on there. But that's where my love for cooking began because those were the only TV shows that really spoke to me. I watched cooking shows, and that's where it began. It gave me something to look forward to on the weekend because I spent so much time alone. And then it just turned into an outlet when I needed to express things or I needed to, you know, just experience different feelings. I, I could turn to food. It's kind of always been there. Okay. Yeah. Watching these different cooking shows, what made you actually venture into the kitchen to actually whip up some some different dishes? The first time um, was because I wanted to make pasta. Apparently, my mom found me making pasta mm -hmm. when I was like three or four or something. It was something random. But as a professional, it was 
almost out of necessity. At the time, it was really hard to find culinary programs that were dual programs. So culinary programs that offer bachelor's degrees. And I knew I didn't need to stay in Philadelphia. Uh, but if I stayed in Philadelphia, I basically would have aged out of the system. So I had, to, I had to go to school. So I went to school and I went as far as I could from Philadelphia. I went all the way to Punxsutawney. And I studied at IUP, and I honestly had, like, two of the best educational years of my life. Um, and then they really just set the tone for everything that I've been able to do now. Mm-hmm. And I have a great relationship with my alma mater. So it, it's a good thing. It's a full circle moment. Okay. And for you, Adam, what started your love of food, <laughs> cooking, and the culinary arts? Well, I like to eat, really. <laughs> That's is what it was. But um, yeah. my great Elwood, my grandfather, I mean, he grew up on the farm. And I was across the hollow where... I grew up. And so going over to the farm, I mean, he would always let me go pick a turnip out in the field. And I always get these giant, they used to grow them huge back then. And my great grandmother had a room that was just full of four different kinds of pies, four different kinds of cakes, donuts, cookies. I mean, she had tins of molasses cookies, sugar cookies. Mm. They're hard as a rock, but (laughs) I mean, she was a, a true farm wife, you know, more so back when younger, you know, even before I was born. But I grew up eating shoe fly cake, which I guess P.A. Dutch will talk about later. And they made scrapple. And plus the hunting culture up there, you know, nothing like a venison tenderloin. Okay. Sautéing in a pan, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then also, you know, there was a 90s, there was a latchkey kid. Yep. Do they still talk about they, that now? Well, I don't know if they still call it that, but I, I was Yeah, but anyways, yeah. yeah. So I get home. <laughs> that is the term. I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, up in northeast PA. So I get home, and you're hungry, then you're trying to cook something, you know, trying to, besides opening a can of Campbell's soup. And yeah. so. You had to get creative. Yeah. Very creative. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, your little fish cakes sprinkling and something. But anyways, I decided to go to culinary school at Penn College of Technology in Williamsport. And then I decided I wanted to be a real chef and learn how to really cook. So mm-hmm. I moved to Boston and then Chicago and then was down in Tennessee for a little. And then I came to uh, Philly in 2010-ish. Okay, 2010-ish. okay. Well, let's talk about Philly food for a minute. Um, I'll ask both of you, what is it that's different here in Philadelphia when it comes to food than other cities? Well, I mean, my restaurant, I do Philly, but historic history stuff. I mean, Philly actually was a true melting pot. I mean, in the 1800s, it was a true melting pot, a true Creole city. And so there's lots of things that we don't even eat anymore. Like I, I do turtle soup, which was the real dish of Philadelphia. Turtle soup was a popular dish in Philadelphia one time? It's a thing. It's a real thing. Turtle soup was the pop- was one of the popular dishes okay. in Philadelphia. In London, Philadelphia was the second biggest English-speaking True. city in the world. I mean, from Market Street or City Hall all the way to the river. You can get anything in the world there. Gotcha. So because of that... You know, the Irish came here, you know, the Germans and my people, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch, the German-speaking peoples before there was a Germany went up into the suburbs. They were known for all the dairy. It was the breadbasket of the European world, too. We would ship our breads out from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And then the escaped slaves, freed slaves, the French Revolution, the French came here, which is what turtle soup would be, an amalgamation of all those cultures. But also catfish and waffles was another thing. If you visited Philly in the 1850s through 1900s, you had to try the catfish and waffles. That was the thing. That was the thing, yeah. And I've never had turtle soup, though. Joy, you said that you had the turtle soup. Do you like that? It's a thing. It's um, (laughs) it's very classical. Well, it was about eating the spices. It wasn't about turtle. I mean, originally it was the green sea turtle, but they ate all those, so now Mm -hmm. they're endangered. Then it was the Maryland terrapin, and then it moved to the snapping turtle that we would do today. But it was really about those spices. It was showing you could afford those spices and eat those spices. Gotcha. 
So does it annoy the both of you when, you know, tourists come here and they're like, cheesesteaks, cheesesteaks, cheesesteaks. Like that's <laughs> the only thing you can come to Philadelphia and eat. I don't know how the cheesesteak even came to be this. I mean, this it annoys staple. me, but I mean, it is, <laughs> you know. It doesn't it's annoy me. Every city and state has their claim to fame, yeah. right? Um, and ours is the cheesesteak. So a lot of places here just took the time to really monopolize on that, you know. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is, and I think that's why I love Philadelphia so much. You can get what you need here. So there's all types of cheesesteaks you can find in Philadelphia or in the surrounding counties and different things like that. Some are chopped, some are sliced, some are like somewhat steamed and not grilled meat, I've mm-hmm. noticed. Some onions aren't fried as hard or some of them are really caramelized down when I think about like gems. So um, that is the beautiful part of Philadelphia. And as I've gotten older, it's become easier to answer this question. But it's the fact that our food scene has always been diverse. If you are truly born and raised from Philadelphia, (laughs) you have experienced multiple foods from multiple cultures your entire life. Because nine times out of ten, you had if you lived in Southwest, you had a neighbor who was like West Indian, West African or, you know, somewhere of that African diasporan descent. Right. Um, Maybe if you were in the South Philadelphia area, you had um, people from different backgrounds. We got a lot of Italians down there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. South Philly is very diverse now. Um, And even if you go out like a. In the Roxborough area, actually, there used to be a lot of Italians over there back in the day and things like that going up towards Manion. Like, if you were truly from around the way or you had a connection with your neighbors, you've experienced everything. So I feel yeah. like we honestly have some of the better palates because I don't go out of town and get pretty impressed by other things because our food scene here is full. It's full and it's flavorful. I never really yeah. had to travel to experience different cultures and, yeah. you know, different foods and things like that. So. I love Philly for that, the accessibility of the foods that we have here. It's give or take sometimes because even when you mentioned the catfish thing, I was just having a conversation with someone about this. And I'm like, no, we we are catfish people. And that's because a lot of people don't realize that catfish was coming straight up from the Maryland shore, too. And a lot of people don't even realize we're actually part of the Chesapeake region, technically. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 103.9 FM. I want to talk to you about um, the change in palate. You mentioned we have a certain palate here in Philadelphia, but just like you were mentioning, you know, the turtle suit back in the day, palates kind of change. And, you know, as chefs in a city like Philadelphia, do you see that as palates change, you kind of have to change things up the way you cook or what you cook and how you cook to kind of meet the demand of the changing palates of the people in Philadelphia? Yeah. I mean, I think in general, everything evolves over time. You know what I mean? And traditions and things evolve. Like say, I mean, pork and sauerkraut, for instance, if you, sorry, mom, if you're listening, but even my family's pork and sauerkraut is way too sweet for me these days, right? Okay. Because they use like brown sugar and stuff. I mean, it's good, but for me now, as a professional chef, you know, it's like not so much too sugar. sweet. So mm-hmm. I sort of make one that's, when I do it, sort of more of a French style even, where it's, you know, put apples in there, you know, like a choucroute style, almost. 
So it, it's different. And I think that's what, I mean, also is the true, like, like she was saying, if like an Italian guy marries a Chinese wife, I mean, you're putting those cultures yeah, together yeah. and it's becoming something Endless new. possibilities there. It's so common here. Or the, it's, it's, so, it's our norm. Yeah. Yeah. Or the immigrants from, say, a Syrian refugee coming in yeah. is picking up cultural things from America and then making their own. I yeah. think it's natural, number one, and then it's just how it normally works. And also people's ideas change or, or whatever. Like if you think you're eating sauerkraut because of like the green, right? Some people say the green. But that's because it's the American dollars. But they were doing that before. You know what I mean? So things just change and you fit it to whatever you want. I think that's cool. Let's talk about taking scraps uh, and making a feast. And I often say that some of the best tasting food come from cultures that didn't have a lot. Didn't have a lot of money, a little bit of suffering going on, and could only work with what you had. And we have a lot of that here uh, in Philadelphia. So I kind of wanted to talk about the origins of some different foods. We'll talk about Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, Joy, talk about the origins of soul food and taking a little bit and making a tasty feast out of things. It's a little hard for me to answer this question because soul food isn't exclusive to a particular demographic of people. I think every culture has their form of soul food. Soul food is simply just attached to the feeling that you get when you, I would say, fellowship and then enjoy this food at the same time. Because when you think about soul food and that visual of, you know, us, right, when you attach soul food to it, mm -hmm. you see some kind of celebration or some kind of family gathering, right? You think of family reunions and repasses and church celebrations and stuff like that. So those are celebratory food. And those aren't foods that we typically consume. But what we are are stewards of the things that we have. And a lot of the stews and the different sauces and different things that we may make or different party rices and stuff that you see in different cultures and things like that. When you think about soul food, they're all because we have been in a place where we've had to kind of take what was given to us and then utilize the resources around us like the land in order to create the best meal possible, basically. So even when you think about um, the scraps that slaves would receive when they were, you know, on the plantations and things like that. Uh, I'm trying to think about a specific cut of meat. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. We're thinking of the pig. Here it, we go. It's, okay, uh, we can go right there to the intestines, and here you go, do something with that. Well, so <laughs> the intestines are one thing, but a yeah. lot of people don't realize that there were other cuts of the pig that the slaves were receiving. So, like, the belly wasn't a delicacy back then, right? Okay. So it's taking the belly and then turning all this fattiness that's assumed to be fatty and not good and wasteful and making soups, stocks, sauces, um, taking the fat and rendering it so they have things to preserve and cook in. Yeah. So it's a lot deeper than just soul food. It's really ingrained in our DNA, right? How we cook and how we utilize things. That's why when you go into your auntie's house or your nana's house, there may be a Tupperware container that's not a Tupperware container because the goal is to use it all. So not just use what's in the container, but then take the container and reuse the container because we don't need to waste the container. Right. No we waste. Don't waste in this house. So. Right. Oh, sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Adam, talk about some of the origins of the Pennsylvania Dutch fare and, you know, having very little and, you know, I think limiting quantity and, and offerings and uh, ingredients kind of forces creativity. Yeah, for sure. And I think that everybody now is a modern American, you know, you can get anything you want at any time you want. And I think that even 100 years ago or so, or pre-refrigeration, for instance, living on a farm, so talk about pork and sauerkraut. I mean, mm -hmm. sauerkraut, you would never eat in the summer. I mean, you wouldn't eat that. Your cabbages are grown. You're making your sauerkraut uh, November, December, and you're living off that over the winter. 
okay. in the spring, you know what I mean? And the same goes for other things, scrapple, you know? So when you butcher, like my family would butcher, would slaughter hogs like on um, day after Christmas or New Year's Day, mm-hmm. which is actually a long, long time tradition. I mean, before there was even German-speaking people, they were doing that for thousands of years. And so you're butchering your hog. The goal is to let that last all winter so you can get through the winter. That was what it was about. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only meat was expensive, eggs were expensive. So a lot of our things, I mean, funnel cake even it started as a holiday treat. Like cookies, we do lots of cookies now for Christmas and holidays because that was butter expensive, eggs expensive, and white flour. White flour was really expensive. People didn't really eat. I mean, everybody wanted to eat like the soft white breads, but it was expensive to do that before, you know, modern industrialization. So there's those things. And then one of these also that a New Year's Day, some people do, it's definitely getting less and less, but there was a stuffed pig stomach that you would eat on New Year's Day also Mm. a little bit. Uh, or you would, yeah, it was a stuffed pig stomach. And um, we call it pig punch. I don't okay. know why. Pig punch, punch, I guess. Oh, okay. So lots of people call it hog maw also. Oh, um, okay. So this is a New Year's Day tradition to eat the stuffed pig stomach. Stuffed pig stomach, like a like you eat pork and sauerkraut on that. It all comes from the slaughtering day tradition of, of having this and then your little feast, your slaughtering day feast. And yeah. then you're, you're making your sausages with the intestines. I remember before refrigeration, so... Right. You're either salting it, making salt pork, like mm-hmm. Chef Joy was talking about. And then my family would squeeze all that fat out of it and save every drop of that. Wow, wow. The cracklings are the, the pork fat. Yeah, my no great-grandmother waste. had a bucket of pork fat, and she would use it in everything. Biscuits, pie doughs, yeah, everything. You have, you, you have lard at home? Yeah. You don't drop your head. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm aging myself. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. But the real reason was to get through the winter. Yeah. Right now, if you have a pig... You're feeding that pig. It's just packing on fat, more fat, you know, like the Italian lardo, you know, it's like two inches thick. You're paying for that. Right. So you slaughter the hogs and then you salt it, pickle it, and smoke it also so that you can get through the winter. Okay. Now, in terms of tradition, since you brought it up, uh, New Year's, I often hear of, you know, got to have the black eyed peas on New Year's Day. You know, I have friends that do that and I don't have any traditions for New Year's. Are you still making the stuffed pig belly? For New Year's, is that a tradition that you've kept on going or the new tradition? I mean, now? I make it for fun. I don't make, okay. I mean, I don't, it's too much anyway for just me, you know, but I mean, mm-hmm. but pork and sauerkraut. Pork and sauerkraut. Like I was mentioned earlier, I do. Is that for good luck? I mean, that's the superstition. Right. It gives you luck, you know, <laughs> pigs root forward, they say. That's where it comes from. But. Okay. What about the, the whole black eye pea thing? In, in the pot, on January 1st, those peas are in the pot for good luck. And then there's some other foods also supposed to bring in the new year and whatever. You can call well, it superstition, tradition, or just good luck type of things. I won't be boiling a single bean <laughs> this year. But I'm actually, just like we kind of talked about earlier, like doing it your way, kind of finding your own way. Yeah. I'll be doing my own thing. Uh, my family is super small, so the goal is for us to be together. The one thing I do know is that in my family, fish will always be served. And pork is always like the second standard. There's no other way to go with that. We don't do um, any kind of fowl, so anything winged or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. How come you don't cook any fowl for New Year's Day? For me, it was, um, I guess you would say, indoctrinated in me that uh, you don't want to cook anything like turkey, chicken, quail, anything with a wing because you don't essentially want everything you wish for or your blessings that you're about to receive, you hope for, pray for, et cetera, to fly away and fly right out the door, right? So you want to keep it all with you. And then that actually, that's why when you (laughs) mentioned the pig, that's why 
the pig is in play as well because the pig is rooted in, you know. Okay. Yeah. So Interesting. There's other traditions that go on, I think, that a lot of people kind of overlook. So I noticed that most people here in Philadelphia, like, associate New Year's with collards. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't eat collard greens. I actually eat greens. I was taught to eat greens, a mixture of greens, kale, turnips, um, mustard, all of the greens that you can really procure. Like what we just talked about, like using the scraps and stuff, because you want to utilize what you have to go into the new year. You kind of want to absorb those blessings, literally, right? Got it. And carry them with you into the new year. So it's different now. Like, you know, the people are like, they're tussling and shop right for like <laughs> bunches of collards. And it's like, that's not actually the goal behind it. The goal is <laughs> the fellowship first. And then these other things just kind of fell into place with the fellowship. Yeah. There's no wrong way to do it, it, it seems. And, you know, from what you're saying, it's more important just to gather around friends and family. And food and cooking really is love. There's something special about putting a meal together and placing it in front of someone and have them enjoy that food. A- at the end of the day, isn't that why you do it? But, but, I mean, yeah, that's why we do it. It also, like, before I even heard the word Pennsylvania Dutch, I mean, nobody said that in my house, but I knew it because, you know, the cultural foods you eat connect you to that that region. That culture, that region, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, Adam, one thing that I noticed about Elwood is that you offer an afternoon tea. I'd love to know the I background do. behind that. What made you bring an afternoon tea to Elwood? Yeah, well, I do Saturday and Sundays, 11 to 2, I do a tea. I just like tea. I always liked it. I always wanted to do a tea time. I mean, but of course, it's a little different, though. I don't do like the straight scones and little cucumber sandwiches mm-hmm. i do like a pennsylvania dutch i mean there's a snickerdoodle on the tea tray and shoe fly cake mm-hmm. and biscuits yeah i mean I, I just think it's cool and i have this local uh, woman nicole from oma herbal's teas she makes some of my teas also but i also have traditional ones too Okay, so if I come there, do I have to wear a nice hat? <laughs> no, no, yeah. there's no dress code. We can code. throw some fascinators. You want to get some? Yeah, okay. you can. Gloves but up to there's the... no uh, dress code at Elwood, though. So. <laughs> no All dress right. code. No. I'm, we're coming fancy. We're coming. <laughs> well, sure, Sunday you ready. Be you, yeah, yeah. There <laughs> yeah. you go. Oh my goodness. Well, times do change, palates change, but the chefs change with the times, and I am so happy to have uh, spoken to the two of you, Chef Joy Parham and Chef Adam Diltz. Um, how can we get in touch with you? How can we get in touch and find out more about Elwood in Fishtown, Adam? Sure. Um, ElwoodRestaurant.com. Instagram, I have Elwood Restaurant. And I'm in 1007 Frankfurt Avenue. So I guess it's on the other side of where most people go in Girard, but towards the Fillmore and the casino, that area. Okay. And Chef Joy, how can we find out about what you're doing and the latest with the different pop-ups that you might be featured in? Oh, I'm everywhere, but I'm off the grid until this spring. But in the meantime, you can always come visit me at CCP. I love to kind of just spend time chatting with students who are interested in culinary arts or anything within the hospitality industry. Occasionally, I'll do some one-on-one workshops and things like that. So come see me at CCP definitely next semester because we'll be working a lot closer with the community garden. I look forward to food distributions and things like that, um, bringing more resources to the campus that just echo what they need in the community so that the educational experience can be seamless. So, right. yeah, so I'm come see me at CCP. <laughs> All right, sounds good. The Pavilion. The Pavilion at yeah. CCP. All right, Chefs Joy Parham and Adam Diltz, thanks so much for joining us on Fridging Philly. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment.
back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Well, it's the holiday season in Philadelphia, and Shara Day Howard has been all over the city. We'll find out what's happening on Shara in the City. All right, Tyrone, are you still looking for that perfect item? I still got to get her one little thing she wants. She wants a doll, baby, so that's kind of hard to find right now. Correction, four-year-old Kamisha specifically wants... A baby alive doll. Yeah. Because got to get the help for the little kids, let them have fun, and then go broke. <laughs> and some coloring books, so they stopped at the nationally recognized Hakeem's Bookstore, the oldest black bookstore in the country. Located at 2010 South 52nd Street, Yvonne Hakeem's daughter now runs the bookstore. So why should people come to Hakeem's? They should come to Hakeem's because we have a great selection of children's books and books on African-American history. We also have calendars. We have Afrocentric gift items. We have uh, items for Kwanzaa, such as candles and uh, Kanara sets. And because we're a Philly institution, we've been in business since 1959. And as you stated, we just got our historical marker as the first and oldest African-American bookstore opened in Philadelphia and on the East Coast. We've been in business since uh, 1959, and I th- would hope that my late father would be happy and proud that he finally is getting the recognition that he deserved. So a lot of people don't know that you have a pretty wide variety of children's books. This is the perfect place to step in, get a little history, and share it with your family. Yes, we expanded our children's section because it was especially important to me that children, especially African-American children, could purchase books and read books that have pictures in them that look like them and relate to their special experiences. And why is it so important to really support black and brown businesses this time of year? It's important to support black and brown businesses because we struggle. We struggle like everybody else, uh, the pandemic, but it seems like African-American businesses Uh, are at a disadvantage sometimes with getting funding and marketing and getting customers to know that they have great products. It's important to be, you know, a positive force in the community where people have an opportunity to shop without having to go into Center City. We have a lot of elderly customers that, you know, don't ride public transportation or they don't drive. And so we've been in the same location over 50 years and we just feel we're an asset to the community. Then we stopped at Black Ice, a premium ice cream shop across the street, serving lunch and some delectable treats. So we talked to Amin and his wife, Keisha. They own the shop. This is beautiful. This is like pinks and purples and blues. So colorful. We are a premium ice cream company, just open, owned and operated by African-Americans. This is one of the owners here. Most of it is her idea. I'm just on the back end helping out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Hi, how are you? Fabulous. Keisha. Keisha. All right, yes. Keisha. So tell us, what was the inspiration behind this place? Um, the inspiration was just for a place where people that look like us can come to enjoy a nice treat in the heart of West Philly. Come, enjoy yourself, have fun, and grab a really great treat. I'm sure it's something for everyone here. So while we were in West Philly, we hit a couple extra spots. We decided to do babes for some cool fashion trends. And then second threads. All right, I just walked into the door, 205. South 52nd Street. That's Kelly. Now, folks, Kelly brings something really cool to West Philly. Tell us about it. I make custom t-shirts, custom hoodies, necklaces, cups, mugs, dog tags, and little girls' tutus and sneakers. All the things. Yes. (laughs) All things customized. (laughs) Now, what's unique about your shop? 
So we try to put the customer first, um, the customer's needs. We try to do it just as you envision it. We work along with the customer to get the perfect product. We're really, really big on providing great customer service, which you hardly find around here sometimes. <laughs> You're right. That is unique, yes. actually, right about now. So looking around, I'm noticing that like you really take the culture into consideration. Why is that important, especially during the holidays? Well, I grew up in West Philly, West Philadelphia, born and raised. Um, <laughs> On the playground so, is where I spent yes. <laughs> So I wanted to bring something unique. I started out doing consignment. So you could resell your gently used name brand items. And I always made the t-shirts, but the t-shirt part kind of blew up. Somehow I'm, I'm still striving and, and thriving. Um, because a lot of people, like, they come in, they feel the warmth of the store. Um, it's a loving environment. Again, I'm big on customer service. Um, You're big on community, like too. Yes. So let's talk about why it's important to be a part of your community as a shop owner, as a businesswoman, as a businesswoman of color in West Philly. In West Philly. So I have West Philly High. I have some of the, the middle schools and stuff walking past. And for them to see a black woman succeeding, that's like major. It's like we can do anything. Like okay. don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do it because look at me. After all of that light and inspiration from Kelly, we decided to go down to Germantown to check out this new shop called Yadin. It's Yadin Cultural Solutions right off of Shelton Avenue and Green Street. Now, the founder, Trace Hanif, explains the secret of Yadin's all-natural skincare and hair care cosmetic line. We're manufacturers and distributors of all raw, organic hair and skincare cosmetic, infusing different herbs inside of each of the products, targeting different type of skin or hair ailments that a lot of the people who were interested in natural healing uh, used to need for their conditions. And we respect all walks of life. One of the things that makes us unique is herbal technology and we're able to infuse herbs that bring about a solution. Our mission isn't just a financial mission. Our mission is a mission of humanitarianism. So I tried some of those lotions, amazing, and they smell fantastic. My favorite thus far was the turmeric soap, so go try that out. Next stop was Uncle Bobby's, right off of 54th and Germantown Avenue. I went there, of course, got some best-selling books, a t-shirt, a bag, and rounded everything out with an oat milk latte, considering my holiday shopping complete. So happy holidays and happy shopping, Philly. Thank you for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Also, we're looking for the 2024 class of Game Changers. Nominations are being accepted right now. If you know a person or an organization doing positive work to uplift communities of color, go to kywnewsradio.com slash gamechangers and nominate them today. Winners will be featured on KYW and will be awarded at a special ceremony during Black History Month. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.